I think that's the most enthusiasm we've ever had kicking off <laughs> an episode of Jazz United. Folks, we want to welcome you to our show. Um, yours truly, Greg Bryant here, host of Jazz After Hours on member-supported WBGO. And my main man, our editorial director at WBGO, award-winning journalist, Nate Chenin. Thank you all for being here. This has been a very fond year-end tradition for me personally. Um, the Year in Jazz, uh, which we've in the past titled A Critics' Roundtable. Um, this year we're doing things a little differently, as you know. Um, I am so thrilled to be uh, sitting here with my, my Jazz United co-conspirator uh, and um, right next to me here, uh, the wonderful author and journalist, Jordana Elizabeth. Um, And we thought, um, what better way to celebrate than to than to just sort of commune together and and compare notes um, and elicit some thoughts and maybe do a little bit of listening um, and talk about this most unusual year that we've all been through. Um, and uh, and so I think what I would like to do um, is actually give everybody an opening chorus. Um, and before, before I do that, let me say up front, and I know that Giordano is going to touch on this as well, but um, the year in jazz began for me as an email exchange among fellow writers. Um, and um, I think it was in 2012 uh, that um, I received an invitation to turn it into a, an in-person event at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. And on that very first edition of the IRL Year in Jazz, um, one of the, the people that uh, I was thrilled to welcome was the great critic and author, Greg Tate. And so as we gather here tonight, um, the first thing that I want to say is that um, we want to dedicate this evening uh, to the life and legacy of Greg Tate, um, who is has been a real North Star for so many of us. Um, and uh, I, I, I dare say that his spirit is, is somewhere in the air tonight. Um, so uh, if you don't mind, I'd like you all to, to just give it up real quick uh, yeah. for Greg. And with that, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, Jordana, but I would love to give you the opening chorus. You can begin our, our opening reflections on this year and everything that we've seen, heard, experienced, um, been through. This year was kind of a blur. I, I feel like it moved um, really quickly and you know, it's um, very strange that the pandemic has stretched this long and um, it looks like it's going to continue um, to be a prevalent um, experiential situation in our lives. Um, I would say that 2021 has been fortuitous and interesting. Um, a lot of artists have been holed up in their studios 
and doing, uh, taking the time to really uh, focus on their work and be creative. Um, for example, uh, Amirtha Kibdambi and Leah Bertucci's um, End of Softness was kind of um, session snippets from their debut album, Phase Eclipse, and um, an exploration of sound, of um, discomfort, of deconstructing femininity and the structures of patriarchal uh, dominance and making um, an album that is beautiful because it wasn't meant to be beautiful. Um, and I, I thought that was really cool. Um, Steph Richards Zephyr, um, she was six months pregnant when she uh, recorded that album and she was experimenting with water and um, submerging her trumpet in water and um, working with uh, ideas of in utero and also um, uh, mythological beings um, who had a lot to do with water and children and things like that. Um, how do I say um, the founder of Libra Records, her name, um, Fuji, so oh, Satoko Fuji, Satoko Fuji um, put out at least three records um, this year. And again, it was because of the pandemic and, you know, all of this time. And so I've, I've been seeing um, that string. And I guess last but least, and we can circle back to all of these um, albums if we like. Um, Lauren Lee's debut record, um, she was, you know, kind of going through pandemic stuff. So I've seen this pattern through so many albums and so many artists, more than I've named now. Um, and I think that's that's kind of been um, the story. But I think the most interesting thing about it is how resilient and how much um, how much it pushed pushed artists, and it's been great. Well, Greg, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in there because. Um, what you just said, Jordana, speaks to something I've been thinking about. This idea of um, what the artist's response to these conditions has been, you know. And at the end of last year, we already had some examples of, of kind of pandemic era albums, whether they were um, things recorded at home under, you know, basically lockdown conditions or, you know, um, albums that had originated as live streams and you know so that was kind of the the quick response and this year I feel like we've gotten a, a second level sure. response you know it's yeah. it's um, it's kind of germinated more but beyond like beyond album releases and beyond you know identifiable works there's this other level in which I, I feel like we can see the results of this highly unusual life experience. And the, it, I'm thinking about a, a, a remark that um, Emmanuel Wilkins made to me recently about kind of when everything slowed down, it actually provided a, an opportunity to reconsider and recenter. And the, the metaphor I think of is almost like a brush fire. Um, like there, you know, being a, a performing and recording artist in this music, there's so much that you have to do just to kind of keep the, the engine humming. And when, you know, 
when the engine broke down and and you had to just kind of sit with yourself and with your motivations, um, it, it was kind of this, you know, and I speak, this is a generality, but it's this moment of reassessment, like, well, what what is it at the core? Like, what is actually at the core of this whole endeavor? Like, why am I doing this? What is it that I'm trying to, to, to articulate? Um, and so when all of that scaffolding falls away, there's a certain kind of clarity that then, I hope, carries forward into you know, something more like a, a, a normal existence, you know, now that people are back out on tour. And so I'll, I'll conclude by saying that um, I saw you know, a fraction of what I would usually see in person this year, but almost everything I saw felt revelatory. Mm. Um, and I think some of that was what I brought to the experience myself, being so desperately hungry and thirsty for live music. But some of it really was the feeling in the music. And I, I kind of want to say that in terms of the ratio of like quality to quantity, this was a really amazing year for experiencing live music. I didn't see enough of it, but what I saw was very sustaining. Um, and that's, I don't know, there's something about that that I, I find really um, inspiring. Man, did you run relays in high school? Because you put the baton right in my hand. <laughs> I've got it in my notes right here. If I had to give 2021 a tagline, it would be for the culture. That's what it's about. We've been separated from the people who inspire us making the music that they make. Um, how to get together in a safe way without an agenda, or if there is one, it's about being in the moment playing our hearts out, receiving the offering that is being given, and using that as fuel, because we really don't know when the next time is. Um, one of the things that Robert Glasper said from the stage of the Blue Note on successive sets that I saw, thank you all for risking your lives to be with us tonight. And that took a whole new significance out of what we've been through. For the culture, man. That puts a certain kind of pressure <laughs> like, how did I play tonight? Did I play well enough for all these people to risk their lives? <laughs> it's one thing to, it's one thing to uh, to say I'll risk my life for this music as a, as an artist, but you know, is my audience prepared to do the same? Um, but I, I I definitely feel like, um, yeah, we are re-entering the fray with a clear understanding of how precious this all is. Yeah, um, and of course we can't forget about George Floyd um, and how that was a huge impact on artists. Um, I think I, I, I know I spoke to Camille Thurman um, for Jazz Record and you know she talked a little bit about that and we don't have to jump into to gender and everything you know right now, but. Um, you know, I, I had almost forgotten, like thinking back to March 2021, I, I had sent uh, you and Nate like a, a list of of articles that I had written in 2021 and I was, and I didn't really realize how many pieces, um, you know, uh, I'd done and uh, writing a series called Feminist Jazz Journalism Now for JJA um, was kind of a, 
an experience that I had that had to germinate and I had to kind of grapple with. Um, I remember early in the year um, kind of sitting with it and kind of looking around. Um, and, and to preface, I am not the first person to talk about jazz and gender and talk about feminism and sexism in the jazz community. Um, but I felt like it was important to do a piece that was void of my feelings and my thoughts and my um, personal experiences and do a strongly um, structured, somewhat thesis um, and kind of a, um, an intellectual and uh, exploratory situation um, as a woman dealing with in a male-dominated field. Um, you know, sometimes I mentor young girls and I say, listen, sometimes you just got to cut out the fat and say what it is, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and it, forgive me, cis males, but I, I've learned that, you know, men respond better if you are concise and, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> It's very, it's very um, annoying for me to hear it, but men my whole life have said, you know what, Jordana, you're rational. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is very insulting to, you know, the reality of, of what, how women behave and how we are socialized and how we are pressured um, to behave, being kind of emotionally cornered and then being called, you know, irrational in situations, but I'm, I'm rambling, but... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I, I wanted to do a series that was that was based on feminist theory and through a lens um, that was that was tight and, and hopefully it came across, you know, well. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that comes to my mind as you're talking about. Um, this field of, of inquiry and focus, and also the fact that you opened by mentioning George Floyd. Um, there's an album that, that I want to acknowledge that really um, resonated with me this year. And then subsequently, I, I had multiple conversations about it with the artist. And, and Jordana, you've worked with her. Um, Jen Shu put out an album yes. called Zero Grasses, Ritual for the Losses. Um, and I just want to mention this because it's an extraordinary work that, you know, my initial fascination with it arose out of a, a sort of mini suite in the piece that reflects the pandemic experience where she, she incorporated creative writing by middle school students in New York City. Um, and, you know, uh, now having a, a middle school aged daughter myself, I know that you know, t talk about speaking directly, like they, they, they know how to express themselves. And, and Jen um, creates this beautiful framework for this expression of, of what the early phase of the pandemic felt like to, to kids, you know, in school. But there's another track on this album um, called Lament for Breonna Taylor, mm -hmm. um, in which Jen Shu takes um, statements made by Breonna Taylor and by her mother and um, sort of embodies 
uh, the, that perspective, you know, literally giving them voice. And, and I had some really um, wonderful conversations with her about what it meant to make that gesture. Um, even, you know, as a sort of, as a risky move, you know, being uh, not an African-American vocalist, but an Asian-American vocalist, taking, you know, ma for forging that bridge herself, you know, to say, I am Breonna Taylor and what that meant. Um, but I think it's a wonderful example of um, really speaking to this moment um, and using all of the empathy and, you know, incisive uh, creativity and really everything at her disposal to um, just to rise to the occasion. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. Jen and I had had a, um, a few exchanges. I don't know if it was specifically on that piece, but um, she had another record come out on Pi, um, and you know she kind of checked in um, with me. I, I, am I getting their pronouns correct? Is she she? I, I should ask, but uh, yeah, okay. Um, hi, Jen. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I've been, um, you know, really going inward and also thinking um, about risk, you know, um, and what y you can lose by telling the truth or or stating a fact. And I think that um, there's so many facts in sexism. You know, it's, it's so hard to deny now as we um, become, as we are able to experience more information and we are able to communicate with one another um, from across the world in, in a matter of seconds, um, there are just there are just experiences that you can't deny. And in 2017, um, I started Feminist Jazz Review, I think like six months before Me Too. Um, and I had done a number of pieces since 2013 about um, the silencing of black women in, in music history and kind of bringing that to light. Um, with Bitch Media and, and LA Weekly and all of these things. And so I had been doing the work. So so when Me Too and kind of George Floyd and all of these things and Breonna Taylor continue to happen, it's almost like people are kind of saying to me, oh, Jordana, that's what you meant. And I, I think in regards to um, feminism and and um, and the experience, I, it was just a waiting game. Um, and with these these recent um, feminist lens pieces, it was a, you know, um, I'm just gonna go for it. But it was I was definitely afraid that I was going to um, lose my career. Well, I'll, I'll say something that was told to me. Uh, very interesting that we have uh, Lydia Liebman in the audience. Uh, I spoke with her father for an interview, uh, NEA Jazz Master David Liebman, and he told me from his perspective, the audience for this music changes every 10 years. Yeah. 
And I thought about that and reflected over that several days. And I really think he's right. I think now is the time. And I think that you are here for a reason. And I think that people have their ears open. The sacrifices have been made. There have been great, great, huge prices paid. But now is the time, and I think the audience finally is starting to change somewhat. I think that's right on point. And, and I wanted to acknowledge that one thing that happened this year um, <clears throat> is, is kind of a manifestation of this conversation that we've been having in, in really just the last several years. Um, the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice, which has, uh, I think, in a very short amount of time, has, has had a, a serious impact, um, announced that they were um, starting a, a, a mentorship program. Um, and I'm, I'm blanking on the, the exact title. Do you, do you remember? I honestly um, just read about it today, and I, I don't exactly uh, remember if you can uh, try and pull that up. But I was um, reading Terry Lynn's essay for the Library of Congress um, this morning. Um, I've looked it up, and it's, it's titled Next Jazz Legacy. Mm. Um, and it's a, a three-year program that Berkeley has developed in partnership with New Music USA. Um, and the idea here is that uh, historically, you know, this crucial mentorship um, tradition in the music needs to be um, needs to be populated with more female mentors. You know, with more more women musicians who have achieved a certain measure of um, you know security and renown in their own careers, and and. There's a there's now a framework by which um, you know younger up and coming musicians can can find that mentorship you know and and so this idea of um, seeding that change you know like there's a there's a a, a pipeline that needs to actually be um, revitalized and and reinvented in some way um, yeah. And I want to um, shout out Jen Shu again and uh, Sarah Serpa for Mutual Mentorship for Musicians, um, which is a great organization that is a cohort mentorship that um, uh, really brings, and I, I don't even know if they particularly like the word mentorship, it's more that um, pairs of non-binary um, women and women of color artists are, are brought together um, to virtually create new compositions um, as a duo and as a team. And they're from different parts of the world, different levels um, of experience. Um, and I was lucky enough to be the editor-in-chief of the first anthology of their writings. Um, so I'm really excited to um, see that and, and, and um Thanks to Terry Lynn and um, Jazz and Justice, Jazz and Gender Justice Institute, um, I had uh, she invited me to do a closing remark um, for a symposium earlier this year, um, and so I'm really honored. But there's there's work I would like to see more mentorship for um, girls, women, and non-binary non writers. 
um, that it's just really hard to um, to to find young women who want to write about jazz. I, I think. Did you guys come into it late in the game? I was in my late twenties. I was thirty, you know, something or so. Honestly, I'm kind of the, um, the the weird kid all my life. I loved it since I was like two. Oh, okay. And, and it was in my house. You know, I was socialized into liking it, and it wasn't a forced thing. It was just the music that went through my body viscerally, mm -hmm. and I think that's a key thing. Like. We, we have to sort of acknowledge that, yeah, the university is a great place to have that. But what about on the street? What about right. in the high school? What about in the elementary school? What about at the places of worship? But when did you become a, a bona fide critic? I'm not a critic. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a broadcaster. I'm working on him, man. I'm working on him. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's actually, it's fairly sickening you know you, you you hang out with Greg Bryan a little bit and you'll, you'll be talking about the music and you'll be like uh, you know and he'll say something like oh yeah Andrew Hill's Black Fire I remember hearing that when I was three years old <laughs> um, but you know I, I want to actually jump on something that you said about um, well let's just talk about a piece of, of art that Greg and I experienced that speaks to some of the issues that you have um, summoned for us. Um, Wayne Shorter and Esperanza Spaulding's opera, Iphigenia, is um, very much rooted in the, um, in the philosophies of resistance that you're articulating. It is a anti-patriarchal work to the core. Um, and, uh, and that was something that really spoke very clearly to both of us when we saw the opera in Boston. Uh, in November. Um, it has now uh, triumphantly premiered at the Kennedy Center as well. Um, I was not there, but uh, if you, you know, followed along on social media, I mean, what a moving thing to see Wayne Shorter getting his flowers, you know, for Absolutely. finally, finally seeing his opera uh, performed. Um, but, you know, it's really something to think about um, the collaboration in that space and the fact that um, he thought about this, um, you know, this classical mythology, this this you know, bedrock of um, sort of misogynist violence uh, in in the um, in the Euripidean lore, mm -hmm. and Esperanza said, "Yeah, okay, like, well, let's let's work with that. I am going to completely dismantle this whole thing." and really force an audience to squirm <laughs> as, as they consider like what it is that is the bedrock of this thing. Um, so Jordana, you did not see Iphigenia. I did not see it, um, but I, I also liked um, Esperanza's uh, Songwriters. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Songwrites Apothecary Lab. Yes, and, and it's very yes. much in dialogue. I mean, she, she, you know, she had a year. Yeah. Esperanza had herself a year. Sure. It's true, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's those pieces are definitely on my list for um, very important and powerful pieces in, in 2021. And yeah, I mean, tearing down the patriarchy, but not just not just in America, but in our small jazz community, mm -hmm. and really having those conversations 
um, you know, I don't remember the reason why I started Feminist Jazz Review pre Me Too was because I was going to all of these record bazaars in Baltimore um, and, you know, just going around and being a nerd and going to all the shops. And I started realizing that in the jazz sections, um, all the artists were men. And the women jazz musicians are, you know, were in vocalists. You know, you have Nina Salone and Betty Carter and, you know, all these people who are arrangers and composers um, in their own rights. Um, Nina did a lot of, you know, um, uh, renditions, but they could do whatever they wanted to do. They were powerhouses. Um, and I, I, I started looking for Abby Lincoln. And I, you know, I had been... I'd been digging and digging and couldn't find her, so I started asking the guys, you know, um, hey, is there any, do you have any Abby Lincoln records? And one guy was like, well, you know, I have some like at my house and you should come over and you can listen to it, but I won't sell it. <laughs> you know, and then um, another, uh, another, as I kept going, I was like, okay, maybe I should connect Max Roach so these guys know what I'm talking about. And, you know, so I went into another shop and was like, I'm, I'm looking for Abby Lincoln. She was married to Max Roach. And, you know, the guy comes back and looks around and says, oh, I don't have any Abby Roach. So um, <laughs> this, you know, this was weird. It was all through, you know, the, the, the resistance in my part was all through personal experience and realizing that, um, you know, um, these guys were really clueless and, if you really um, take a look at their catalogs, I think um, Max Roach had done something like 51 and Abby had done like 54, like in her whole you know, career. I, I looked that stuff up and then, you know, of course the conversation of Alice Coltrane, um, you know, who has been slowly, you know, being, being um, dug in out of uh, the quiet space of jazz history, um, and not to ramble, but uh, my first piece on Alice was in 2013 for Aquarium Drunkard. And I just, again, I just, I did it, and I, I, I don't like sit around and say, okay, I'm waiting, you know, but I just kind of do things and, and slowly allow it to gestate, and it's just been a, an honor and um, a blessing to see you know, Alice um, get her flowers, you know. You know, I think it was this week that I learned that among the, um, among the young people who uh, grew up at the Sayanantam uh, ashram, uh, we all know that Georgia Ann Muldrow, you know, came up there at, at times, but mm -hmm. Doja Cat. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so... I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't well, know. you know, her nephew is um, uh, Flying Lotus. So, you Not know, Doja Cats, Alice uh, Coltrane. Alice Coltrane, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alice Coltrane's nephew is Flying Lotus. Yeah, she, her descendants are far out. Yeah. And that's, I think it's really beautiful. And then, of course, um, John Coltrane's live in Seattle this year, his first platinum album of his career, 56, after, 56 years after he died. Well, so, the, so a Love, the original Love Supreme went platinum like a month after a Love Supreme Live in Seattle was released. And I, I find this so interesting because um, 
now with A Love Supreme being a platinum album, it means that John Coltrane, and I, I, I'm not a statistician, so I don't know, but obviously John Coltrane's on Kind of Blue, which is one of the only other platinum selling jazz albums ever. So here we have a musician who's on two of the, I mean, I don't know how many, how many platinum jazz albums are there, like four, five? I have to Lydia, help us out. Do you, do you know off that? Um, but like this idea that Coltrane, of all people, is like the guy who's on two of the best-selling jazz albums ever. And you begin to think about this idea of like the crossover success or what have you. And all you need to do if you don't already know what John Coltrane was about with respect to, you know, popularity and, and the commercial impulse is listen to A Love Supreme live in Seattle. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah. and sit with that and say, well, here's a guy who just put out this masterwork and he has decided, you know what, I'm gonna I'm actually going to play this piece. And and here are a couple of like wild and woolly young cats, and I'm gonna bring them on and have them like play in the sandbox, you know? Um I mean it is as if we needed it, it is reaffirmation of this idea that sometimes you play the long game, you know, and and every once in a while, it actually works, and right. and it take it may take you know, sixty some odd years, yeah. but you know, folks can come around. Exactly right. I mean, both of you dropped so many gems in your last statements there, thinking about experiencing works in full form. You know, you were talking about Wayne before. Um, reading up on weather report rehearsals, you know, Wayne would write these 10 and 20 page songs. And Joe Zawinul says, hey man, we're gonna play page five and we're gonna pay, play 20 bars of that and that's the tune. But Iphigenia, we hear the whole thing realized. Lee Morgan, the complete live at the lighthouse. We hear every single set that those men made in those three days, John Coltrane, Love Supreme, live in Seattle, we hear this untethered, exploratory Coltrane, which tells me that a lot of people are listening to this music in the closet. We don't know who they are. You know, we don't always see the clubs full, but these records are selling, even with legacy artists, which, you know, we would argue in another life may be a hard sell in certain periods of their development. But, you know, thanks to, you know, folks like the West Coast Get Down and International Anthem Records, there's been this appetite that has been created for folks who really don't give a damn about being the biggest jazz fan. They want to hear something organic, real, full throttle that meets them where they are. And I think these records do that in a very um, creative way. And it's weird that it's taken 60 years for people like us who dig that stuff. I'm just glad that folks are digging it. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned International Anthem because I was thinking about Jamie Branch's Fly or Die Live while you were kind of talking about this because if you listen to the album, it's really a damn good show. Mm. Jamie is um, a really good uh, leader and the audience is having a great time and it was recorded in Zurich uh, two months before the pandemic hit. So you kind of get to hear the freedom and the laughter of the crowd and the engagement and everybody feeling like having fun and enjoying themselves. And, um, uh, and of course, um, Micaiah McCraven um, had his debut on Blue Note, 
um, still doing stuff with International Anthem and Brandy Younger had their debut on Blue Note this year. So I was like really excited for both of them. And I, I, I asked Scotty, um, he can't, Scotty McNeese, the co-founder of International Anthem, he spoke to my class at the New School and I, I somewhat mistakenly asked him, um, you know, is International Anthem becoming a, a pipeline for Blue Note? Um, uh-oh. Yeah, he, he exactly. He, he didn't really <laughs> enjoy that question <laughs> very much. Yeah, I was just curious. Maybe I should have asked him personally and not in front of people. But, um, you know, the answer was pretty much like no. Um, you know, Makai is working on something with them too. But anyway, International Anthem, the catalog, for the last three, four, five years, they've just been really, really... Um, making great choices and having so much fun and being so supportive. And it's been great to see um, the artists grow. Um, of course, Irreversible Entanglements um, had a record this year. So um, International Anthem has been so consistent. And I would probably say their catalog is is probably my favorite mm -hmm. Um right now as a, as a youngin, as a young Sprite listener. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, it it was a good year for independent releases, I think. I was looking at my favorite albums from this year, and among them are, you know, um, James Brandon Lewis's Jessup Wagon, which yeah. was released on Tau Forms, um, and um, Artifacts, uh, and then there's this, which is out on Astral Spirits. Um, you know, it was kind of cool. I was looking at the list, and, like, I mean, m a lot of a lot of righteousness on very small independent labels. And, it, and you know, at this moment, um, especially when we've got, as we all know, supply chain issues and, uh, and all the vinyl pressing plants are busy uh, with Taylor Swift and Adele records. So, uh, you know, so if you've got your band camp up, you're in the game, you know, and that's, uh, th that feels like a, a positive development in terms of, you know, it's not hard to get it out there um, it's just a matter of how do you actually get people to listen. Yeah, Astral Spirits um, put out uh, Luke Stewart's uh, bass guitar and amplifier. Um, and I, I just, I, I remember getting the press release and just being really um, enamored with it. I think the, the first volume was put out on tape um, on a small label um, and now the 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 vinyl volume two is being is already pressed, but I think volume one they're raising money right now to to um, press the first collection. But um, yeah, Astral Spirits is uh, a great label and putting out great stuff. So I, I want to pivot to some audience questions soon, but I, I feel like there's there's some there's still some uh, some food on the table. Greg, it, what have we not touched on here? Um, <clears throat> I would say um, we actually touched on it, but I'd like to come back to it a bit. Um, dealing with In Memoriam. Mm. Um, every time I come to Harlem, I think about Dr. Lonnie Smith, who we lost this year. Um, was uh, Give it up for Doc. <laughs> Indeed. Um, he was responsible in a lot of ways for me getting into the business um, past 
the local level, to be honest with you. And through him, I got to see insight and participate in what it meant to produce a concert, promote a release, um, be a limited edition road manager, um, and just help to take the weight off an artist, be they legacy or upcoming, so they could focus on their music. And in a really small way, I'm just glad that I got to glean the knowledge from him and, and be a part of his, um, his universe. Um, I've told you this story, Nate, um, but I'll say it again here. Just a couple of blocks away from here was the original Small's Paradise. It is now an international house of pancakes. But what was really cool about 10 years ago uh, when Doc was you know, living here half time and in Florida half time, I met him here in Harlem and we were listening to an early pressing of one of his records, I forget which one. He's like, man, are you hungry? We gotta go eat. I was like, okay, man, let's go. I just wanted to go along for the ride. It was just hanging out with the doctor and everybody on 125th knew who he was. Like, hey, doctor, hey, Lonnie, hey, how's it going? I was like, this is a jazz guy, but this is actually a, a local community elder, legend. You know, it, it, and it was crazy just to go to where he had had all these gigs 40 years ago at Small's Paradise, and we're just chilling there, having some pancakes. And I felt the coolest I've ever felt in my life at that moment. I just, I just wanted to share that. Yeah. And his collab with, uh, with Iggy Pop this yeah. year was like, a nerd's dream. That was one of the unexpected pleasures of the year. Some, you know, that falls into the category of things we did not know we needed. Um, I lost uh, uh, two mentors this year, um, and uh, and I ended up writing about each of them. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll be brief here, but I do want to acknowledge. Um, so, uh, in a past life, uh, I was an aspiring jazz drummer. Um, and my teacher, while I was living in Philadelphia, um, was Ralph Peterson. Um, and Ralph was, if anyone, I, I, know, I know that at least half the people in this room knew Ralph. So uh, Ralph was larger than life. Um, and he was um, exceedingly, um, well, he was, he was very intense as a musician, as a person. Um, he was a tough, but extremely generous um, teacher and mentor to a lot of people. And one of the things that I thought was, was so beautiful was um, in the last decade or so of his life, um, he really uh, found a, a supportive environment at Berkeley and was able to become the, the sort of mentoring institution that his mentor, Art Blakey, had been. Um, he had the, the platform um, and the, and you know the infrastructure with which to you know to really cultivate you know at least a generation maybe a couple of generations of um, you know fiery young musicians um, and so uh, his loss uh, is still being felt um, but there's a lot of great music that he left um, and the other person who was uh, a mentor to me came just a little bit after uh, I left Philadelphia and moved to New York and that was George Ween. Um, I met him when I was 22 and uh, spent the next three years of my life working with him on his book. And then the next um, 
almost 20 years, well, I'm terrible at math. Um, basically from, from, uh, from 1999 until uh, this year, um, he, he, was a, uh, he was like a, a family member to me. Um, and, uh, you know, and I don't, again, everyone in this room knows what George Ween's legacy is, um, but I will say that uh, to the very end, um, I actually had plans to go uh, see him for the first time since the pandemic uh, on Sunday, uh, and, uh, and he passed, I think, on a Tuesday. And so when I got the call, I thought that I was picking up a call, you know, the call said George Ween on it, you know, and I thought that I was getting a call to talk about the impending visit. So that was a very destabilizing moment for me. But when I think about him, I just think love, you know, yeah. I just, it's all love. Um, and so, you know, definitely this year has been um, touched with some sadness, um, but also, again, with celebration, you know, for, for what these people have, have brought into the world. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I, I know we talked earlier about Greg Tate. Um, I have a piece coming out tomorrow in Amsterdam News, an essay um, and celebration um, about his life. And I kind of tell the story of, of how we um, met. I, was, uh, I got a gig at the Village Voice, um, you know, just a year or two before it uh, uh, went out of circulation. Did it come back? I think it came back. It came back in zombie form. Yeah, <laughs> mm. it, it was it was it was on the decline. But I, I got a gig to do a print and online piece about a, a black shoegaze band called The Velt. Shout out to Danny and Daniel Chavez. Um, anyway, I I had had a little um, a little disagreement with my editor back when I was a young little kind of hothead and stuff. Now I'm very demure and happy to be doing whatever I can <laughs> muster these days, which is which is plentiful and I'm thankful for it. But anyway, you know, and I, I had told Danny what was going on and he said, uh, don't you worry, baby girl. That's how the black hipsters talk. <laughs> don't you, baby girl, don't you worry. We gonna call Greg Tate. So um, he connected us and um, it was over Messenger and I, I didn't really hear back, um, but uh, a few weeks later, my editor at East Bay Express, um, this is 2016, reached out and um, she had just been looking around and realizing there were no black music critics around her. Um, and, and she was the music editor at that time. And something just kind of bubbled up inside of her and she became very concerned and, and we talked about it and I decided to write a piece called um, uh, Black Voices Are Essential in Music Criticism. Um, and a few people reached out to me about it but I sent Greg the link and, and he was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and, and he had just taken me under his wing and I was able to um, host his book release for Flyboy 2 in Baltimore um, and do a number of, of, of things so over the years. But honestly, as, as time went on, he was just um, a friend, more than a paternal figure. As I, as I said in my, my Twitter and Facebook post, um, uh, a Yoda, a human being Yoda. Um, just this very kind of ethereal, ethereal kind of knowledgeable person and so humble, 
you know, my mother um, messaged me and said, this is this is Cornell West, you know, um, mourning Greg Tate. And I said, yeah, you know, he mm -hmm. he knew everybody um, and he connected people all over the world, particularly the black glitterati, as I like to say. Um, but the last thing he did for me was got me a gig at the Guggenheim blog. I put my name through. Um, and I didn't I didn't know the editor had just kind of mentioned it to me. So he had been putting my name out into the world without me knowing and just, you know, has has really fostered my career. And honestly, um, I don't know what what the world's gonna look like without him. I don't know if I'm gonna be okay. But I feel his presence and I've um feel at peace. I haven't really had too many bouts of sadness. I can just kind of feel like he can do his work without limitation now, mm. without human limitation. Wow. You know? Um, and so I think he can do even more. Wow. Um, you know, one thing that I want to offer um, as we talk about Greg is, you know, when, when a musician passes, um, transitions, I think for most of us, you know, maybe all of us, the, the first instinct is to reach for the, the record, you know, reach, cue up the playlist or reach for the vinyl or whatever, however you access and, and hear the manifestation of sound, right? Um, with Greg Tate, obviously you reach for the book or you call up the, the article online. But the thing that's so beautiful to me is that I don't know another um, writer about music who has as much music on the page as Greg Tate. Mm. And when I read him, I literally, I mean, I guess not literally, but I, I, I really hear his voice as I read his words. It's really kind of uncanny, you know? And he really talks the way he writes. He, yeah. <laughs> I, I, had, I kind of had a revelation. The first time I, I saw Greg deliver a paper, um, it was as if a key had turned in a lock in my head. And I, and I actually, you know, I had always been dazzled by his writing, but I feel like I truly understood it once I heard his voice. Mm -hmm. um, and then subsequently, every time you read him, it's possible to hear that voice. And so I feel like, um, it, and it's certainly bittersweet, and it's certainly something we'll be working through, but you know, as we look at his body of work, it is so thrummingly, brilliantly alive. It's like he is definitely with us. You know, he's he's with us in in the work he left behind. Absolutely. Wow. Okay, getting emotional up here. Um, and uh, Jordana, I want to ask if there's anything else that 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 you want to touch on before we open up the floor to some, some call and response here. Hmm, let me think. I mean, we've talked about a lot um, of music and about a lot of uh, changes that have happened this year. Um, I guess um, I just want to say that I'm very honored and um, in regard to, and to, to kind of wrap things up on, on jazz and gender justice and all of these things, you know, I, I've always wondered what makes me different. 
um, I, they're less than a handful of black women jazz critics who, you know, are able to make a living and able to do it regularly. And it's, it's almost kind of, I'm very, um, it's almost, I'm like outside of my body experiencing this. Um, and it's, it's just such, uh, an honor, but I, I do want to see more diversity in the jazz criticism community and if there's anything that um, I can do to support or mentor um, young women, women of color, non-binary writers who want to be critics, who love this music, you know, I really um, want to do that. And I, 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 I guess, um, <laughs> just, to, just to wrap it up, um, Skin from a, a metal band, uh, Skunk Anansi, a black woman, a uh, hard rock singer. We were on a podcast show together, and, and she, she, we were talking about being the only one. Uh, shout out to Shannon Effinger. We're, I'm not, you know. But we were talking about that and, and what it is about us um, that has allowed us to not only be in these circles to be in but be embraced and supported and to enjoy um being in these circles and what is it truly about um systemic racism and sexism that has shut the door for others and and why are we so shielded and i i guess um you know those are things that i think about um in my personal world and I, I would say it's a little lonely sometimes um, and a little bit confusing um, because everybody's been pretty damn nice to me. So I, I would like to get to the root more of 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 what it is that is um, holding others back. And again, I would like to do more to call others in. Mm. Well, in the spirit of that invitation and, and um and we will, uh, on our show page at Jazz United, we will we will make it possible for folks to reach out to you. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, but in the spirit, in that spirit of invitation, um, I would love to um, to ask our audience here in person um, if anybody has questions for any or all of us. Um, so I guess Ryan Maloney, fearless our our fearless leader here at the museum, uh, will will be the um, will be the, let's see, pick your talk show host, sure. uh, Sally, Jesse, Raphael. <laughs> yes, I can do Sally. We just dated us ourselves with that reference, right? Who would like to be first? Hi, how you doing? Thanks for letting me uh, ask a question. Um, yeah, I was just uh, rereading a book that talked about um, the jazz scene in New York City um, in the 80s it was actually it was it was Jaco's biography which kind of had a depressing turn towards the end but one thing I wanted to mention is that it just mentioned all of the clubs that you know he was playing for a while in his New York City years and then you know unfortunately wasn't allowed into the end but on that note um is it a worry somewhat that I just I just recently read that the the 55 bar had to do a fundraiser just to stay afloat um I'm not I know I guess Village Vanguard is doing some shows right now, but with COVID happening, is it a concern at all 
um, with a lot of uh, the way real estate is going in New York City with a lot of these clubs not doing so many shows, some having to shut down because of, of rent increases and everything. And what do you think can be done um, to kind of help cultivate some of these clubs? And, you know, and, and obviously the more clubs, the better the scene, right? And what, what do you think could possibly be done to help that? And that includes also, by the way, I know WBJO's in New Jersey. That would include also in New Jersey as well. Um, so just wondering. Uh, I think we got to take the music back to the people. Um, there is one group of uh, gentlemen, Nasheed Waits, J.D. Allen, and Eric Rivas that have an organization called We Up Reup, and they are finding the means to be able to tour to bring their presentation um, not just to traditional clubs and traditional venues, but untraditional spaces. There may be a barbershop, there may be a community center, maybe there is a college, maybe there is a proper performance venue. But I, I think about the healthiness of the scene and what presents as a challenge on one hand, maybe an opportunity on another. Um, I think we also have to look at the fact that, you know, here in New York, back in the day, Harlem was the place. It was buzzing with so many venues, you couldn't count them all. But now, sometimes we're a little trepidatious to go above 110th Street. That has to change. And we have to have situations where musicians are you know, taking the reins and presenting themselves, not just the way they want to be presented, but to people who otherwise may not have the economic um, situation to be able to afford to see them otherwise. So I just wanna encourage folks who may be listening out there they may have an idea, try it. Present your music as best you can. If it's not a traditional venue, all the better. We need to get creative because things are shifting. I, uh, I started promoting before I was 21, so I, I wanna give a shout out to all ages opportunities as well. And you know, the way I did it was I would just kind of naively go to art galleries. I would, I would intern um, at a couple places uh, uh, but um, naively go to art galleries and say, hey, can we hold this show? And I've never, you know, had anybody uh, turn it down. And I, I wonder um, if COVID and all of these experiences ha almost have us give us a fear of opening ourselves up to reaching out to people we don't know and just walking in the door and saying, hey, would you be able to do this? I don't want to make any money. The money's going to go to the artists, so um, non-traditional spaces as well, and also um, you know bringing in a new generation and, and giving an opportunity to have all ages shows outside of bar venues. This is one of the things that the pandemic actually gave us. Um, remembering that you can create a space and a vibe, <laughs> you know, um, Greg and I. Uh, had a couple of experiences with um, Jimmy Katz's series Walk in the Wind, which presented um, concerts throughout the summer and into the fall in Central Park. Um, shout out once again to Nasheet Waits um, for being a curator. I mean, um, the first one of those that, that we went to uh, was the Chris Potter trio. Yeah. And, um, you know, and this is, um, there's no amplification, so you kind of have to lean in, especially during the bass solo, you know? Um, when, when he says walk in, walk with the wind, like there, 
you know, that's like a literal, <laughs> you really have to kind of lean in. But it was beautiful, you know, there were people with their kids and their dogs and, you know. Um, I talked uh, this fall to um, alto saxophonist Darius Jones about his uh, solo album, Raw De Moon Alchemy, I think that's the title. But, you know, Darius had this experience during the pandemic of presenting a bunch of performances in the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And he told me that it was like, he had such a positive experience in that setting and, and in bringing his sound into that environment that he kind of didn't want to, like, he's like, yeah, I think I'm sort of like spoiled for, like, I don't want to go into like a concert setting anymore. Like, that's how I want to do it, you know? And so when we talk about um, all access or, you know, all ages, like there's, there are so many ways to bring the music to the people, as Greg said. And, and I'm, I'm really glad that as we've been forced to get creative and think about, you know, adaptive strategies, like hopefully some of these things, you know, hopefully the genie's out of the bottle, yeah. you know, as far as that goes, because I, I love that. Yeah, I, I, and I'll just, I would add just one thing to that, which is about venues, right? We, people who love this music, you grow up learning about the Vanguard and Sweet Basil and Bradley's and all these places. I think the scene has changed to a point where we need, at least I've tried to shift my thinking about my connection to the venue because these venues change and they open and they close. And it's unfortunate that we don't have that longer period of time to connect to the venues, but the music finds other locations and being able to disconnect yourself from the venue itself and be willing to have great experiences here for a year or two or three or five, but then move five venue, five storefronts down and have those same meaningful experiences. But that's not necessarily how, how we grew up thinking about the music. So it takes a little bit of a, a shift in thinking for sure. Number two. Hey guys. So you guys mentioned the Lee Morgan release. Um, we've worked a number of releases this year that have included B-side after B-side and alternate take after alternate take. And I was also thinking, you know, like this Beatles documentary just came out, which is, <laughs> you know, eight hours of watching the sausage get made. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, we've heard these masterpieces so many times. Does hearing all this backroom stuff and all of the different creative stuff that goes on behind the scenes, does that change how you think about these masterpieces or these pieces of music that you're already so innately familiar with, but now you're hearing all of these other sides of it? I mean, I certainly feel like it changes, it does change the way I hear things. I'm just curious what, what you guys would say about that. My short answer would be yes, it changes. <laughs> um, and you know, sometimes, and it depends, right? It, it depends on what the material, what kind of material you're talking about, right? Um, for example, um, I'm just gonna uh, pick an example that's resonant with, with this year. So 2021, um, if we think about an anniversary, okay, um, my, my friend and colleague Ben Ratliff wrote one of my favorite pieces of music writing this year about John Coltrane's um, 1961 Village Vanguard recordings. And had you formed a relationship with that album as an album, and then in the 90s, you finally got to hear 
you know, what was it, a four CD, mm-hmm. um, sort of the complete uh, engagement. I mean, that's a whole different experience. And um, and I, I have to think that it would then change your relationship to the original album to have the full context and to understand the flow of this engagement and the way that, you know, um, Eric Dolphy's playing changes over the course of the run and, you know, all of these little details. Um, so sometimes it's a matter of just um, opening the aperture that you're using to view something. But then sometimes it's like um, another example and a different example would be um, Lee Morgan's Live at the Lighthouse. And I will defer to Mr. Bryan on that one because when we talk about like Talmudic uh, understanding of, of source material, this is, this is the pairing of, of listener and subject uh, that you want to go with. It's, it's crazy. First of all, I love this question. Uh, I think about it a lot. In the case of The Lighthouse, it's almost like, man, I wish there were CDs in 1970, because that record, in my opinion, originally could have been a three-disc set, similar to what Keith Jarrett did in the 90s with Live at the Blue Note. The material is just that good. Um, In a non-2021 example, um, full disclosure, my favorite rock band of all time is probably the Band of Gypsies. That was Jimi Hendrix with Buddy Miles and Nashville's Billy Cox. Jimi chose the right takes and he chose the right tunes for that original album. I'm not saying that the source material from those two nights at the Fillmore is bad music. No, it's great. It's just not that album. So I can kind of make the delineation or the separation and say, hey man, if I want to hear what got me excited about this band in the first place, OG album. But since there was only one official album from them, I'm just kind of curious to see what else they got into and what their process was over those two nights as a band. So yeah, it's a historical document, but I don't think it lessens the impact of, of what they did. No, go ahead. Um, the funny thing about following women jazz musicians specifically, I feel like they've been chopping and skewing the whole time. And because we haven't really been um, kind of getting into their stories and getting into their background, of course, um, you know, Alice's, uh, dis- the discovery of Alice's uh, music with just organ and her voice this year. Um, but again, with, uh, you know, Amirtha and Leah and all of these people, I've really been reading the liner notes and really been talking to them um, even Steph Richards' Full Moon record um, a number of years ago. I, I think as a journalist, I'm always into the the background story and the 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 underlying um, process of the compositions. And I I, I don't know if we're uh, and this isn't a, a, a like a contrast to what you were you two are saying, but I've been noticing a trend. Um, with women in jazz that they do different versions. Betty Carter did different versions of herself all the time, flipped around, skewed, all this stuff. And Jasmia Horn um, actually um, has been kind of doing these these covers of Erica Badu and um, Betty Carter and others flipping and skewing. But I, I understand more of what you're saying, listening to source material and broader stuff. But I think, I think women have kind of been quietly doing that um, for years. 
there's a wonderful book that Greg and I devoted um, an episode of this podcast to earlier in the year um, by Daphne Brooks, and it's titled oh, yeah. "Liner Notes for the Revolution." But as we talk about as we talk about um, women artists as curators, mm. I mean that's kind of her thesis, um, and she does a brilliant job of recontextualizing a lot of people who we who we know as you know, genius artists and producers of sound, but, you know, have not at times given them the credit that they're due as, as musical thinkers, as... Um, Composers, arrangers, exactly. producers, yeah. even mixers sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, engineers, excuse me. I've been, I've been saying it the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> um, back to Lydia's question for a moment. I, I do, it does remind me that among the other... Um, really towering figures in the music that we lost in 2021 is Phil Schapp. Um, and as we talk about alternate takes and sessionographies and, you know, um, arcana, uh, I mean, there's nobody who comes to mind more quickly uh, than Phil Schapp. And, and he... Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like we've fully reckoned with, like, jazz culture without that figure. Um, but he certainly um, he certainly was a living embodiment of some of what you're describing, this this notion of like obsessing over like um, you know, what the temperature was in the studio during take three of <laughs> you know catalog number one one nine three seven C. So I have a question for all three of you, and I hate to put you on the spot, but you talk, you've talked about so much, so much really rich human experience that you've all gone through in 2021. As I think all of you alluded to at one point or another, that there has been some great positivity that's come out of what we've experienced this year. So could each of you please share with the audience your one light bulb moment of 2021? Good question. You can go first. I, 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 need, to, I need to gather my thoughts. Light bulb, light bulb moment. So, so by light bulb moment, I assume you mean um, il illumination. I think the most, one of the most interesting moments, because it's been a really interesting and rich year for me, um, was interviewing Robert Glasper. Um, I'm a staunch feminist. I've been a feminist since I was 11 years old. And, you know, I, to be honest, I like experimental, far out stuff. So I didn't know much about Robert. And, you know, I, I would, I, I, I checked in with, um, some of my cohorts and community members, and I said, um, you know, you guys, uh, should I talk to Robert? No shade, I was just, you know, um, he's a very, uh, mm. <laughs> I, 
I don't want to say masculine, but you know, he's kind of he's kind of a little bit of an epitome, epitome of of that kind of um, style and presence. So um, I think I think both of us were um, were kind of side eyeing each other um, uh, because you know um, Robert has said it many times before, but he doesn't feel fully embraced by the jazz community. And this is for this was for the cover story of Jazz Record. Um, uh, and I, I want to thank um, Andre first of all. Um, I got to cover uh, Claudia Mina. Uh, Myers and Robert Glasper for covers back to back, and um, I don't think a woman has done that before, so um, I'm very appreciative for that opportunity. Anyway, um, and I, I didn't know much about the Michelle Mercer piece, um, you know, kind of calling him out, um, and and uh, and Ethan Iverson and the conversation and the the whole deal. Um, so, so I had conversations with my friends, and you know, I'm, I'm an excavator, and I actually, um, as a very feminist person, I'm kind of fascinated by masculinity, and I really enjoy having conversations um, with cis men, and I, I like to, um, and this is, you know, feminists are probably like, what are you talking about? But I like to check in and see, see what's going on, and I, I have a, a friend. Um, who is a trans woman, um, but before they transitioned, they were a very kind of um, bro-y human being. And I, I said, well, you know, what, what do you think about this comment? Uh, I think the comment was like, European girls love um, Ethan's music or something like that. And, uh, and um, she was in the jazz scene back in the day, and she said, well, yeah, I, I've been to Europe. Girls really do like that music, they really do kind of go gaga for it. I said, okay, I'm listening. I'm like you, but I'm listening. Um, and I, I took that into consideration and I, you know, talked to some some other people and I've, I've had men say, listen, there are not a lot of women, when I go out with women, there are not a lot of women who like jazz, who I can have that conversation with. I know, and this is what Michelle said. This is, this I know, and this is what Michelle said in the article. I think, I think um, I'm I'm a little bit of on the fringe as a feminist because I I like to have conversations and I like to explore. Feminism is about equality. Now, if you want a matriarchy, I am all for that and that's great. But if you want equality, there has to be an exchange. If if we want to be equal with men, we have to kind of know what we're being equal with. And do you know? And if that's something that we truly want to be equal with, um, so uh, anyway, um, we 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 did the interview, and I just I just asked Robert about it. Um, hopefully, you can find it online. I have to figure out what um, it's on my website, jewriting.com. You can find the link, and um, but I, we just had a conversation about it, and you know, I did give him a platform to be like, hey, listen, you know, when I am on stage, I pay attention to the women in the crowd. And when I am grooving, they start to move and get excited. And when we're riffing and going off and doing our 10 minute solos, they're on their cell phones, all of this other stuff. I am not being an apologist. I'm not, you know, um, saying it's right or wrong. Um, but we had a good conversation and he was appreciative. And I think um, 
in 2021, um, journalism and, and, and that, that non-bias is very important. And I, I try to be a, a non-biased excavator when I'm really doing my job and to hear all the sides that I can possibly hear. And I think maybe maybe that's possible why I stand out and have able, been able to um, grow and survive in this, in this field. Um, but you know, um, shout out to Michelle. I, I I appreciate her work, but I I I feel like um, and Robert said it. Nobody gave me a, an opportunity. Nobody called me and and gave me a chance to to talk about it. Not defend, but you know. So um, I think that was probably the most interesting thing and I think my favorite thing about journalism and working with men in a male-dominated field is um, learning how to communicate and confront an issue without being confrontational. There's nothing wrong with black women rage. There's nothing wrong with being angry. Being a woman can be infuriating, but um, I was glad that I got that opportunity to talk with them. Thank you for that. Um, that's, uh, I've got to check out that interview. So yeah. I, I, I missed that. <laughs> I'll send it I to you. I missed that. Um, so I'll go next if that's all right. And I'll, and I'll let you, I'll let you uh, bring us home. Um, John, when you said uh, light bulb moment, you know, perhaps it's the fact that, that we are here in Harlem. Perhaps it's the fact that Lydia mentioned Get Back, the Beatles documentary, um, which, is, which is just, you know, irresistible and something to just lose yourself in. But for me, the music film of 2021, by a wide margin, is Summer of Soul. Oh yeah. And, and when you say light bulb, that is what this was for me, because I had heard about the, the Harlem Cultural Festival, um, but it's one thing to hear about it, to read about it, even to see photographs. Um, what this film does so marvelously is place you in that experience, and um, wow, what an incredible thing to bask in, you know. And then, and and then, you know, to it also makes you think, right? It makes you sort of reevaluate the received wisdom and the kind of um, the work of cultural arbiters over the last, you know, fifty some odd years. Think, thinking about, well, wh why is it that this has been so thoroughly eclipsed? by what happened, you know, a uh, hundred miles or so upstate. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that, that was a gift this year. Um, especially, you know, I think m many people watch this movie uh, on their, you know, televisions or <laughs> devices and, you know, at a time when we were not uh, in throngs of people. And so to see the vibrancy of that community expression um, was soul affirming and life affirming and sustaining, um, and then the music. Oh my God! <laughs> so that's it for me. Um, mine is a bit more philosophical, um, and it has to do with you know the continuum. You know, where do we all fit on there? You know, in memoriam, we've lost so many of our, our greats and our mentors and our friends um, and people we've looked to for direction and for the way. Um, but for me, the message in ringing in my ears, it's your time. 
It's our time. We have to seize the moment. Personally, I'm not sure the exact shape that that takes. Um, I think about how privileged I am to be able to even have a forum like this to share about things that I'm so passionate about. It's definitely um, a gift and a blessing. Um, but I think in terms of, again, as much as I love the past and as much as I've, I've grown because of studying it, I've got to make a contribution. And again, not to be selfish or self-centered, I'm really laboring over what is my legacy going to be? Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Greg. Um, I, I feel privileged to think that um, Jazz United, which is this thing that sprung out of the desperation of the <laughs> pandemic, as, as we were saying, like, man, we got to talk about some stuff, yeah. you know, and build yeah. this thing. I, you know, I, I would love to think that as you consider your legacy, that this is, this is one small part of that. Um, but, uh, you know, I sit here in, in um, solidarity and in admiration of the work that you are both doing. Um, as I look out at this audience, uh, I know that um, that you are all doing some very vital work in this community, and so uh, I I just want to uh, to thank everyone for the work that you're doing. Um, as Greg says, this is our time, um, and uh, as we consider these various you know um, pieces of history that that we revere. Um, they are speaking to us in a present tense, yes, you know, and, and it's up to us to ensure that it remains in the present tense. Um, so I know that we all, we all feel in, enlivened and, and, um, and sort of touched on the shoulder uh, as we think about how to carry that forward. Um, and with that, I think maybe for the moment, <laughs> our work here is done. The work continues, but the podcast is over. <laughs> and our panel is done and I just want to thank everybody so give yourselves a hand yeah. thank you for being here thank you all thank you to the National uh, Jazz Museum of Harlem as well for having us we, want, we do want to issue a special thanks to, to our guest Jordana Elizabeth yes, indeed. who yes, came indeed. up here thank you You know, I was I was really scared because this is the first year that you've had one person on, and I was like, <laughs> no pressure, ah, yeah. no pressure, no pressure. Um, but this has been really, really, really fun, and I'm honored um, to have to have been a guest. It means a lot. It meant a lot to us that you're here, um, and we also want to thank Ryan Maloney and the entire staff at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. Um, it has been a wonderful thing to uh, to have a home for this panel over the last almost a, almost a decade now, um, and also to sync up um, WBGO Studios and Jazz United uh, with this event and with the work that the museum is doing. Um, it's uh, it, it's a wonderful thing. So. Uh, Greg, why don't you do us the honors of, of, of delivering the, uh, the patented Jazz United credits. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, man. Jazz United is a podcast from WBGO Studios. I'm Greg Bryant. He is Nate Chenin. 
Our producer is uh, Trevor Smith. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen at WBGO.org. Our theme song is United, uh, written by the great Wayne Shorter, Newark's own, world-renowned, and performed by Woody Shaw, Newark's own, world-renowned. We will see you again in 2022. Take care. Right on. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.